Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, Amos chapter 7 is where I would ask you to turn, please. Amos chapter 7, page 651 in the seat Bibles, if that would be of help to you. So we did our best to try to order the service in light of six testimonies instead of uh, just two. Of course, things happen, and we understand that. I told Dale, I said, it makes you feel human. And so that's, that's fine. But what I want to say that is we'll probably be tending to our food a, a bit earlier today. So just to let you know that. Amos chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in just a second. Verse, verses 7 to 9. Amos 7, 7 to 9. It was, it was bitterly cold, wasn't it? My dad turned 84 last Sunday, and I was able to talk to him on the phone on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, maybe, maybe a little later, but um, we were talking. Of course, he always asked about the weather, and I said it was going to be, at that time, it was supposed to be like negative 27, 21, something like that. And I told him that, and there was like this long pause on the phone. So, it's like, are you okay? Make sure you're just warm. Like, dad, I'm not two years old anymore. Please. <laughs> Okay, verse, verse 7. This is what he showed me. Okay, who is God here? And Amos is the he. This is, or he is God and me is Amos. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today, this morning. Let's bow our head just for a brief prayer. Our God and Father, may the love of Jesus fill us as the waters fill the sea self-abasing, Christ-exalting. This is victory for me. In Christ's name, amen. So the last time that we were together, we covered these first six verses of Amos 7, and we considered two visions God had gave, gave to Amos of what was to unfold. And we saw how Amos, because Amos was God's man, and this is important, and because he knew his God, because he was God's man and because he knew his God, he cared about these unrepentant people of Israel. And so Amos cries out to God for mercy on their behalf. We called that praying. That was verse two there, if your Bible is open. Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. Verse five, sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So here is a man that desperately cares for these unrepentive and wicked people. And we discovered that because he cared and because he cried out to God on their behalf, verse three, God said, this will not happen. Verse six, this will not happen either. And we learned that the New Testament ministry of God's people was to intercede just like Amos did for people unwilling as of yet to cry out to God in repentance and faith. If, if you're a Christian, that is our responsibility. And the reason why we must do this is because God's judgment 
is his wrath is real. And we said that unless God's wrath is real, the mercy of God would be irrelevant. So God would just be blowing smoke here or kind of like sticking out his chest and just giving out empty warnings. But of course, God's not blowing smoke. He's not sticking out his chest. He's not giving out empty warnings. He's providing warnings that are very, very real. We also learned that while it's the character of God to punish sin, it's also the character of God to offer pardon for sin because God is patient with sin, but God is not indifferent to sin. So think of it this way. Every one of our sins will pay a horrible cost or every one of our sins have paid a horrible cost. Our sins will be paid as men and women remain unrepentive, unwilling to see their need of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, thus they will stand condemned. Or our sin, and this is the good part, our sin has been paid by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. So by, by repentance outwardly and by faith inwardly, men and women like you and I may be pardoned. The only way that we can be pardoned, God's grace to us provided in Jesus. So having discovered this, we then understood that God's patience becomes active, not in a vacuum, but as a result of his people praying. And so we learned, I think we learned that somewhere between divine sovereignty, who's in and who's out, and human responsibility is the mystery and our duty to pray. And that was in the case of Amos. So now verses seven and nine with our remaining time, And I think I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. If it's true that a truly good person can suffer long, but not forever, eventually they will come to the end of their patience, then the same is true for God. He might stop once. He might stop twice. He might keep taking it 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 times. Who knows? But eventually he will say, enough. It was Dryden, the poet, who said, beware the fury of a patient man. And we can add, Beware the judgment of a patient God. That's verse eight. I will spare them no longer. And here God is revealing that his patience with sin has an end. And so God then takes this delicate instrument. Some of you know what it is. It's a plumb line. Once again, I had to find myself to Google a picture of what is a plumb line and I found it on the first try this time. Verse seven, the Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. So you have God the master builder having built the wall and he's also God the master surveyor and now he begins to survey his people with the plumb line. So the question comes, right? And they're good questions. What is the plumb line that God holds? What is the wall? And what is God saying here? Well, how does one know what is true and right and just and fair in relation to God? Well, the only way that we can know what is true and right and just and fair in relation to God is that we compare it to God. So we ask the questions, what is real truth? What is real love? What is real obedience? What is real holiness? What is real worship? We don't put ourselves there. We don't compare it to other people. There's too much error there. The only way we can know the answer is that we assess it, we measure it against God. So human experience or consensus or popularity will always fall short or they will lead us astray and thus sometimes by our own bias they will corrupt so we can't rely on that we need a standard the standard is God so the wall the plumb line are ultimately God himself God's character God's will 
And God has made his will unquestionably clear to his people here. He told them before what is right and what is wrong, what to believe, how to behave. So there shouldn't be any doubt here. Now in this, what we need to do is we need to take a couple of steps back and think about our Old Testament history and think this way, that God had redeemed his people. God freely set his affections on him. By his own free choice, God chose his people Israel. So God saved his people Israel out of Egypt. Well, how did God chose to save them? Well, God told them the way to salvation. Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And of course, God people did. And after God redeemed them from Egypt, he gave them his law at Sinai. So if you like, the wall represents in verse 7, God's grace. God redeemed his people by his own free choice. The plumb line is God's law, God's holy standard. So he gave them his law to show them the righteous standard and how they ought to frame the very existence of their life, not any way they like, but in light of the law that he's given them. And this is what we see here in the wall and the plumb line. This is what it's telling us. God redeemed his people by his own free choice. That's grace. Why did he choose them? He chose them because he decided to. And that was, and that was a mercy and that was God. The wall then, God's grace, his redemption. Why did God give him them the law? Well, God gave them the law as we said that they might know that the God who chose them by grace will give his law, which in itself is a grace, so they may know now how clearly they should live. So the wall and the plumb line is the saving grace of God and the grace of the law. So right away you say, the grace of the law? Yes, the grace of the law. Because God's grace, by God's grace, he didn't redeem his people from Egypt and say, okay, everybody, do what you like, please yourself, it is on, freedom, go. No, God loves them. He would have been unkind if he said, do what you like and go where you like. As I said before, in my family, we call that hate. So God's grace redeems them, and God's grace given in the law showed them how they should live. It's sometimes it's called going back to first principles. When you have difficult decisions to make, sometimes those Ten Commandments, the, the, the very essence of God's moral law, sometimes they are wonderfully help, helpful to give you the clarity that you need. So God's grace redeems them and God's grace given in the law showed them how they should live. And loved ones, that is how we need to look at the Old Testament. In fact, it's really the only way that you can look at the the Old Testament. You need to take your New Testament glasses and see the Old Testament right. So you put on those glasses and you think New Testament, God's grace in the New Testament. It was God's grace in election, God's grace in predestination, God choosing us before we choose him, before there was time or space or anything. And then God coming and saving us all by grace. Then God's grace comes and telling us how to live. We become adopted into the family of God. And all of a sudden, the law of God, the very law of God, Hebrews 10, is placed in our heart. And now it's not a mystery to know how we should live and serve the living God. So God's grace in Jesus, then his suffering and death, has saved us, redeemed us from our slavery to sin and our slavery to self. And now in this grace, he hasn't left us to work our way into heaven. Spurgeon said, the salvation plan of, the, the salvation, salvation plan of works is impossible, but he also hasn't left us in doubt about how we ought to live. No, God has given us his word to know how we ought to live. Now, Think of it this way. Listen to Psalm 119. I shall walk about in freedom 
Okay, how is he going to walk about in freedom? For I have sought your precepts. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Is your soul down? You need wisdom? Is there no joy in your heart? You need light, clarity? The law of God. James 1.25, the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, as we finish here, we need to see that, that the plumb line God sets out is not on everybody, not yet. Here, it's just on his people. Verse eight, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. So God is judging here those who say that they are his, his own people. And then the judgment comes and it continues. Verse nine, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. Why? Why did God say that specifically? Well, because in those places, the grace that God given, had given them was abused and the law was ignored. They behaved as if God didn't say anything about what they were to believe, how they were to worship, and how they were to behave. And if you think with me, that is a peculiar contemporary problem. Nevertheless, with the, nevertheless what they did, they mix and match, putting what in suited them and taking out what did not, and presto, you have a people ruined. Now, I'm going to say that again. They mixed and matched put things, putting in what they liked and taking out what they did not like, and presto, you have a people ruined. Alex Moiter on this said, at the shrines of Isaac and the sanctuaries of Israel, the grace that was sought was the benefit of worldly prosperity through richness in the land, in, in the stock, and in the family, ushering themselves into a life of absolute greed. And if you've been with us through, through Amos, you know that is them. They use God to their own end. And now that end, the end of those things were coming. So grace was abused. It was misused. God was simply to them an errand boy. He's another cabana boy. So that, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Fantastic can have all their needs met for all the wrong reasons. Grace abused, law neglected. And God says, I am going to bring them down. And this time, crying will not bring them back. Verse 9b, with my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. In 2 Kings 14, you can read about Jeroboam this afternoon. He was very wealthy. He did some things right. But when God came to examine him, he fell short. His father's example was pitiful, but he was still responsible, and he never could quite shake those things off. And of course, Amos says nothing here. This is, this is the weird part, right? The judgment comes, and, and he doesn't pray anything. And he doesn't intercede as before. And so you're thinking, why aren't you doing anything, Amos? Why are you silent here, Amos? Well, this is what I am going to suggest to you. The plumb line is representing the very law of God. And that plumb line is what kept Amos silent. Listen to your Bible, this time the New Testament, Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This is the great hush that the law of God provides. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. There's three images that came to my mind immediately when I read this. I'll share two of them with you. The first one is the mother, a busy mother with kids. And so she's got a baby in her hand, and she's got four or five or six little ones, and they're all complaining. Timmy Timmy pinched me. Tommy bit me. He said this, and she said that. And mom, will you help me? And the mom's got the baby, and she's got the baby, and I'm, I could just see the mom going, would everybody please just be quiet for a moment? You see, the law does that. My second image was Charlton Heston playing Moses. And so he holds the law of God in his hand, and he holds it over the whole world and says, everybody be quiet. Everybody is guilty. And only the law of God can do that. So when people say silly things like, I never thought I'd see the day, or how could they, or I'll never, the law of God is held up to us, and it declares us guilty. And I think that is why Amos said nothing. And ladies and gentlemen, as God moves across this congregation this morning from seat to seat, and as God moves across, quite frankly, this pulpit, and he begins to set his plumb line on himself, of himself on us as he begins to set the plumb line of his word on our walls, the walls of our lives. How will you do? How will I do? Is your wall built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness when all around your soul gives way? Is Jesus Christ your only hope and your only stay? Do you rely on Jesus Christ for your righteousness at every point of your existence and have a life that reveals that day by day? Because you may have built your own wall and it's a very good wall. It's big, it's long, it's impressive and it's been doing quite well for all these years. But despite that, there's only one test and that is when God applies the plumb line, the plumb line of his law, the plumb line of his word on our lives and then we will discover the true state of our walls. So I have to ask you this. I'm under orders here. Is your wall going to stand Is my wall going to stand? When God takes his plumb line, is it going to stand? So if you're a Christian this morning, do you you believe that your best day is never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace and that your worst day is never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace? So when the plumb line is set up against us, we can say only this, it is because of the Lord's mercy through Jesus Christ that I am not consumed. And it's only because of Jesus that this wall is going to stand. And if you're not a Christian this morning, your, your wall may have a lifetime guarantee, but there is more to you and I than a lifetime. And we have to think those things through. So this morning, if you hear God's voice, please, please, do not harden your heart. Now may we all bow to the majesty of our gracious God as we pray. As your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, so let me say two things. When I say amen, we have to finish our balloting. I'm going to call for the ballots and give you the results. And then we're going to ask our new members, Lord willing, to be the first in line during our meal. So just kind of keep that in mind. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that Christianity is not a how-to religion. That Christianity is a rescue mission and you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is our rescuer. And you continue to rescue us, don't you, Lord, day by day. 
as we try to walk that narrow way. We thank you for that as Christians. And this morning we pray for those here and listening that aren't Christians. And as we said, they have a fantastic wall, but the wall is only built for life. There's far more to life than life. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will bring them to faith in your Son. They will repent and believe that Jesus Christ, as we said so often this morning, is the only way for one to be saved. Now, Lord, bless our food and bless our occasion together in our meal. Help us enjoy these simple, happy moments and be thankful in them for Jesus' sake. Amen.